Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool holds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls, and there's no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Have a look please at those central verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We're better together. That's the theme of the teacher in chapter 4. There are two ways of approaching life. We can live as me or as we. And in this chapter he is urging us to choose that second path. We're better together. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with Scottish independence and I know that many of us will have very different views about that. And so if even mentioning that has been a big distraction for you, then I apologise. Please forget that. But please keep this phrase, this idea in mind that we is better than me. There is a strength in numbers. We need to keep that idea in mind, that slogan, better together, and it will make us wise says the teacher. Now before we zoom in on this theme and see how it affects our lives at work, at home, in church, before we zoom in on that, 
it'll be helpful to have a quick look back at what we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes. What's his message been? Well, twofold. First of all, face facts, says the teacher. Face facts. And as we've read, he hasn't pulled his punches. He really hasn't. We sense in life that we want to achieve something lasting. But you won't, says the teacher. Chapter 1, verse 15. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Or maybe we want to be remembered. But you won't, says the teacher. Chapter 1, verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Okay then, we want to understand the world at least. But you can't, says the teacher. Chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Life is short, says the teacher. Life is fleeting. Eventually, time will take us all away. We will die. There is nothing we can do to stop that. No amount of wealth or love or laughter or fame or learning will change that fact of our mortality. And after time has taken us away, it will quickly sweep away anything we leave behind until it's like we never were. And so the teacher asks in chapter 1, verse 3, really a headline question for the book, what does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's not a sentimental book. Face facts, says the teacher. Life is just a breath. That's his catchphrase. The NIV translates it as meaningless. Older versions have vanity. But all the Hebrew word means is a breath, a vapour, a mist, something that's here and then it's gone. That is what life is like, says the teacher. And we need to face that fact. As you have that meeting at work, or as you write that essay, or as you plan that holiday, it seems like such a big deal. That's how it feels. But really it's not. The universe really doesn't depend on it. Those things will come and go. In time, even you'll forget about it. And on the bigger scale, we pass through life causing barely a ripple. That is what the teacher says. Life is but a breath. Therefore, enjoy life for what it is. The teacher's message at one level can sound quite bleak, but really, it's not at all. His words actually set us free to enjoy life for what it really is, rather than what we think it ought to be. If a moment is sweet, then enjoy its sweetness. And don't spoil it by lamenting the fact that it won't last forever. If you're excited about that trip, or if you're enjoying your work at the moment, great, enjoy that as a gift from God's hand. If the sun is shining and the air is clear, enjoy that while it lasts. It's liberating to learn these lessons from Ecclesiastes about the impermanence of life. Because once we understand that life is just a breath, 
and the things in life are just a breath. It saves us from seeking permanence in those things when they will never deliver that. It causes so much pain the way we try to build our lives on what we see as solid ground. Money, education, even family. But those things are not solid ground. They're just a breath. But there is a solid ground. Nothing created but the creator. Only God is permanent and therefore, says the teacher, build your life on him. He is the underlying reality that will never change. Only him. As everything else comes and goes, he is the bedrock underneath. So build your life on him because he alone is more than a breath. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Face facts and fear God. And the aim of the book, the aim of the book, the final thing we need to see before we dive into chapter 4, the aim of the book is to help us to live wisely. Part of the problem with the NIV's translation of Havel as meaningless is that it makes it sound like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's all the same in the end. It's just meaningless. But that is not the message of Ecclesiastes. This book is here to teach us wisdom for living, to help us think and make choices in a way that is more in line with how the world really is. The teacher's aim is to keep us from folly and to show us a, a path, a path that is wise and best. It's a very um, simple example of that in chapter four. Four times he says that A is better than B. A is better than B. And so it's not all just meaningless. It's not all just the same. And so don't bother. He's trying to show us a path that is better, the way of wisdom. So, if that's the message of the book, let's zoom in on this theme in chapter 4. And we'll see the choice that he lays before us. It's, it's hard to analyse the writing of Ecclesiastes. His line of thought jumps around. It's more in pictures than in arguments. For our Western minds, for, well, for my Western mind, I find it difficult. But I think we can see the passage is organised around these two ideas. I've put them on the sheets for us. The sadness of living for me and the strength of living as we. And I've also put down for us, it's worth that the structure in the passage, the sadness is around the outside, like the bread in a sandwich, and then in the middle, it's a classic Hebrew technique, in the middle there is the strength, which is the real force and thrust of the passage. So those are the two ideas. Let's have a look. First, the sadness of living for me. Um, Quite a few people I've heard have said that Ecclesiastes is like a photo album. It's like the teacher opens up and says, look, this is some of what I've seen. And here's another thing as he turns the page. Have a look at this. Well, in this passage, he shows us four snapshots which all illustrate the sadness of living for me. First, have a look down, please, at verses 1 to 3. It's a very bitter picture that he shows us. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Maybe the teacher has switched on his TV, and he sees the report about Syrian civilians in Homs being starved out by their own government. 
Or maybe he was learning like some of we were on uh, Thursday evening about Equatorial um, um, in Africa where um, fabulous oil wealth in the countries which stays in the hands of the few while the many live in grinding poverty. Or maybe he's opened his newspaper and he's read the reports about child abuse in the children's homes and how organised it was and how carefully concealed it was for many years by those in charge. The teacher looks at the oppression in the world and he doesn't look away. But there's one thing about it that he finds particularly grievous. See how he repeats that. Again, I looked and I saw all the, all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. What saddens him the most in some ways is that no one stands with the vulnerable. They suffer alone. We have to say that's true. It's true at the macro level. You can't hide from that. In the UK, we spend a lot more on pet food and makeup than we do on homeless care. And it's, it's true in the micro level. So we think about our spending over the last year. What were the biggest checks you wrote? There is much suffering and little concern. And that is what the teacher sees. And it leaves him, as we read on, feeling very bleak indeed. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Can a believer really say that? It's true that elsewhere the teacher puts the other side of that. He says, better a living dog than a dead lion. In other words, where there's life, there's hope. But this is how he feels in chapter 4. This world is such a loveless place. This world of me, not we. It's such a loveless place, he says. You'd be better never to have even seen it. And then he turns the page in his photo album. Read on, please, as he shows us something else. And I saw that all labour and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is striking. I suppose we readily feel sympathy for those who are downtrodden. But it takes real wisdom also to feel the plight of those who are forging ahead. Those consumed by striving competition, fueled by envy, eating us up from the inside. The impulse that, if we're honest, we all know to keep up appearances, to keep up with the Joneses. Where are you going on holiday this year? Oh, right. What sort of shoes are those? Oh, okay. What's your house like? Are you buying, renting? We ask these questions with an edge. We like to rank ourselves among the people that we know. And when they are ahead, we do not like it. And then, as he goes on with this picture, the teacher then describes how this envy plays out in our work. And the question is, what are you doing with your hands? 
What are you doing with your hands? Some uh, drop out of the race, the rat race. You think, oh, I won't be taken in by that. But don't be a fool, warns the teacher. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. He's talking about laziness. The uh, foolish, lazy person achieves nothing, preserves nothing, makes nothing, has nothing to share. And so he ends up isolated. Literally, he eats himself because there's nothing else around. He's on his own. That is one extreme, the fool who folds his hands. But then there is the other extreme, the, the striver who's got both hands out to grab hold of anything that's going, the workaholic, the neurotic saver, always wringing out that extra few percent. But that's not wisdom either, says the teacher. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That's a picture we recognise. People allowing work or earning to distort the rest of life. How many friendships, family relationships even, suffer? Because I'm just going to be a wee bit longer in the office. Just a wee bit longer. We recognise this danger. And we we need to recognise it. Because this too is part of the sadness of living for me. And then the third picture in verses 7 and 8 develops that. Really, it speaks for itself. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? He asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, we recognise this picture, we know this. This is a cliche almost in our culture, the workaholic who ends up all alone. If you've read Silas Marner, or if, uh, if you've seen the film, I think it won the Oscar a few years ago, There Will Be Blood. Or if, um, maybe this is more my level, if you've seen Inspector Morse, um, you have Lewis, who is more rounded, he has a family, that sort of thing. But Morse isn't distracted by all of that. He's terribly focused on the case. And so he cracks it, but he's no better for it. We know what the teacher is talking about here. How the jobs we do can squeeze out our relationships. We know about this, but we still fall into it. And so the teacher warns us. And then finally, in the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 16, he he shows us how lonely it is at the top. It's as if he's heading off that objection. If If I climb the ladder, I know it'll be hard on the way, but once I reach my goals, then it'll be worth it. Well, the teacher says, be careful what you wish for. The um, Hebrew here is apparently very hard to translate, but the gist of it is this. It's about an old, an old ruler and his young successor. So the first man, it seems, well, it seems both of them were born in poverty, but the first man, he reaches the top spot in the kingdom. He's the king, but he's all alone because he won't listen to anyone. And so in time, he is replaced Another young man rises out of poverty to scale the heights of power and success. And at first, he's very popular, this new ruler. Think Tony Blair in 1997, very popular. But he ends up 
just as remote from all the people in the country. I think Tony Blair leaving office after the Iraq war. Teachers warning us, be careful what you wish for. Even at the top, it's very, very lonely, perhaps especially so, and he would know. So this is his warning, the sadness of living for me. It's not an attack on ambition or hard work. It's not a rebuke to those who work long hours per se. But the teacher is warning us, when you think little of others and are driven only by thoughts of your own prestige, pursuing private goals and personal advantage, it doesn't end well. It doesn't pay off like I thought it would. Those choices seem to lead to gain, but actually they don't. Rather, that's a big part of what makes this world such a bitter place. It isn't wise, the sadness of living for me. So how should we live? Well, let's turn now to those central verses and see, secondly, the strength of living as we. Often these verses in the middle, especially verse 12, are used as weddings. You have a husband and a wife and then uh, um, put Jesus in the mix and it's a cord of three strands and happy day. It's a mistake to limit though the application of these verses. Probably as you look at them, the teacher has more in mind people who work together or who travel together I like verse 11. It makes me think of people in the highlands out um, camping or something like that, um, having to move their sleeping bags closer together to keep warm. There are strength in numbers. That's what he's saying. There are strength in numbers. Have a look at the numbers. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There is strength in relationships. And it's not just simple functional... Have a look at verse 9 and the ambiguity there. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Does that mean you'll make more money with a business partner because with someone there to help you? Or maybe, maybe that's true. But in the context of the book, the words that are used there are actually quite significant. Think back, please, to chapter 1, verse 3. What does man, what is the return? It's the same word in the Hebrew. What is the return for a man for all his labour? And then chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return. Where one will make merely a profit, two will make a more genuine return because there is someone to enjoy it with, someone to stand with you when you need that. Life is better together in community. Strength comes in relationships. 
And we can apply the teacher's wisdom to all kinds of areas in life. We've got to put it into practice and live our lives as we rather than me. So when you're planning, especially if you're a working person, when you're planning how to use your evenings, your weekends, the precious annual leave, think about who to spend that time with. That is wisdom, and it will pay off. It doesn't seem like that often. The way it works for me in our house is that I have a list of jobs that I'm anxious to get through, and I really don't want to let seeing people interfere with progress with the jobs list. Do you recognise that? I need to learn from the teacher, from this passage, that real gain is not found in finishing my jobs because the list will just fill up again. Real gain comes from being with others in deepening relationships, the kind of friendships where you know when something's up, where you can actually help each other. And if you absolutely have to get your jobs done, you can get someone around to help you with them. Don't watch rugby on your own. Don't send an email if you can phone. Board games are better than computer games, unless it's multiplayer. (laughs) We will have many regrets in life, but we will seldom regret spending time with other people. We need to learn to think as we, not me. And this wisdom applies in our work as well. Very often we think about our work and it all comes back to how it's suiting me, the pay, the holiday, the conditions. How is it working for me at the moment? But this is a reminder that actually people matter more than these things. What about the people you work with? Do you know them? And what about the people you're working for? The clients, the pupils, the consumers? Work is so much richer when we think about it in terms of these personal connections and when we make the most of those. I guess for many of us, there will come a time when we would just crave human interaction on a daily basis. When I'm old and housebound and I I just want to see someone every day and yet now for many of us we have that opportunity, it's there but we fail to see the value of it. We find it tiresome even though there is so much potential richness there. Or think about church life as well as work. In church, how do we think as we, not me? Well, we need to avoid the cinema mentality. What can I get out of this Sunday? I hope I find the sermon interesting. I hope we sing that song I like. Uh, I don't go to small group anymore because I wasn't getting anything out of it. There's no strength in that. That's a fragile way to live, unwise, vulnerable, But what about, who is here today as I look around? Who's new? I wonder how he's getting on and she's getting on. How are we doing? As you look look down verses 9 to 12, it's a wonderful picture of a local church or of a small group. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. 
but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We, not me. And then the teacher's wisdom applies in family life. We need to learn not to necessarily want to achieve things, but just to enjoy people's company like the sunshine. Think about your spouse if you're married or your family and think about the question, how are we doing? Not what are we achieving, but how are we doing? Us. I guess there will come a time for many of us when we give almost anything to just spend an afternoon pottering with that person. But it's hard to feel that now when it's all there for us because we're too busy with stuff. We miss the value. We miss the richness. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the strength of living as we. But isn't there just a shade as we look at it and read it? It just sounds a bit ordinary, a bit secular, a bit like the sort of thing you might read in a feature in a magazine. Common sense. Trite, even. I mean, who's going to who is going to argue that with the idea that spending time with people is better than working alone? If you put more into a community, you'll get more out. It sounds pretty basic. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. Well, maybe not. The thing about common sense is it's so rare, and um, I, for one, have been glad of this reminder. But actually, as we come to this in the Bible in the context of the book, in the context of the Bible, we see that actually this is quite apart from the usual well-meaning thoughts that we might hear. For one thing, this comes with a real authority. Don't be a fool, says the teacher. Newspaper articles don't usually speak to us like that. But the teacher is very frank. If you ignore my wisdom, you are a fool and you will end up in a miserable business. And this teaching also comes with the weight of analysis behind it. Why are we better together? Well, it's because of how we're made, says the Bible. Behind Ecclesiastes stands Genesis. You can tell that that's in the writer's mind from the words and ideas and language that he uses. We are made for relationship and community, it is not good for the man to be alone, said God in Genesis 2. Why? Because we're made in the image of the relational God, who is Father, Son and Spirit. Popular wisdom doesn't have these roots of weight of explanation. And it doesn't set it either in the great story, the context of the Gospel. The story of a God who came to mend relationships, to be known and to know. And who will take us to that place in the end where we will be with him in a city? In a city. A place of people. A place of relationships where we will see his face and that of many others. But the big thing for us, and with this we must conclude, the big thing that sets this apart from the usual wisdom about life in community is that Ecclesiastes leaves us in a different place from the ordinary. Because it takes us back to the ultimate relationship. Something that is beyond or underneath marriage, underneath family, 
beyond friendship takes us back to our relationship with God. Have a look, please, at chapter 5, the next thought that the writer's mind jumps onto. Just read those first few verses on your own. See what's in the back of his mind as he talks about relationship. He says, draw near to God. Listen to God. Work on your relationship with him. Stand in awe of God. That is the background all the time in Ecclesiastes, this call to stand in awe of God. Live your life before him, conscious of him, fearing him, thanking him. And that, that relationship, even more than any other, will be your strength. There is a friend, says the wisdom of the Bible, who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus Christ. Just have a look at verses 9 to 12 again, one more time, and think of Jesus Christ. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Ultimately, it is Jesus who is this friend to us. That is the ultimate relationship. It's not an easy passage, Ecclesiastes 4. I haven't found it so this week, and maybe you haven't found it so this evening. It's hard to grasp the wisdom of the teacher. We need to pray for God's help. But it sends us home to think, and I think that's clear enough. It sends us home to think, how are we doing as a family, as a church family, with your friends and with your maker? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your nature and in what you've done, we see that you are friendly. That you want to be known by us. Lord, please help us to set that relationship as the bedrock in our lives. And then help us, we pray, to live wisely in your world. Not to be selfish, not to be divided by envy and ambition, but to live as we, to be strong together. Lord, please make us wise, make us wise in our thinking, in our living. We pray that we would find the blessing that comes from living as your creatures in your world in line with your words. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.